0: Hey, everybody. It's Michelangelo Caruso. Welcome to the Talk To Me podcast. I'm on with Bruce Headlam today. How are you, Bruce? I'm well, and it's nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you as well, man. Um, For those of you that are watching the video version of this podcast, you can listen on iTunes and all the various platforms. If you're listening, you can also catch the video version on the Michelangelo Caruso YouTube channel a few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of listening to the new Paul Simon audiobook, and it is fabulous. Bruce is one of the co authors of that book with Malcolm Gladwell. Um, I think you've remade how musicians will tell their stories in years to come. The autobiography was not serving a lot of musicians well. Is, have you received feedback like this?
1: I haven't received feedback like this, particularly but it was part of the genesis of the project. Malcolm and I met, you know, as we typically have over the years we've lived in New York every couple of weeks and we have a few drinks and, you know, we remake some piece of journalism. You know, what if we own Sports Illustrated? What if we <laughs> had to remake the New York Review of Books? And he was always keenly interested in audiobooks because he drives a lot, I don't drive. And I'm one of those people who doesn't like wearing headphones, so I don't like, uh, I don't listen to a lot of audiobooks. But he thought audiobooks could be much, much better. I had just read an autobiography of a musician. I was staying at someone's house and I just picked up this book that was there. And it was terrible. Because it wasn't about music. Um, It was about groupies, it was about drugs, it was about rehab. Um, And
0: And all those stories are the same.
1: Yeah, kind of, yeah, I can't, you know, I, but I, I grew up in a musical family and I'm interested in the music, you know, and even Keith Richards' autobiography, which is a great autobiography, I think he mentions like one lick he, he pulled from Jimmy Reed and that's about it. There's not very much about music. Yeah. And I was saying, well, I, I remember talking to Malcolm, saying, well, you know, music is the obvious place to do this because the autobiographies are universally terrible as all, and, and most of... Not universally there are some good ones yeah. uh, but you want to hear it you want them to discuss it uh, and you know musicians are not often that good at discussing music you know but if it starts to play they go oh listen for this and listen to this yeah. you know later malcolm and i started broken record with rick rubin which is a podcast and, and again you know if you're sitting there with Robbie Robertson, he'll talk about like, listen to the upbeat in this part of King Harvest. That's what, We couldn't get that for the longest time. That's what makes it work. So, so when, the, when the opportunity came up with Paul Simon, I was pretty excited because I thought, well, this is, this is what we thought about doing years ago.
0: Well, for all your disclaimers about not being an audio guy, fair disclosure, you're a musician, aren't you?
1: I'm not a musician, no. I've got two brothers who are professional musicians. One is a, an opera conductor. The other is a, is, teaches music theory at Eastman. All right. um, I play guitar not, pretty, not very well. I play piano not very well. Um, uh, but I do both those things better than I sing. So there you go.
0: I could tell from the book, because you, you share duties with Malcolm in the, in the audio book. Yeah, he, is the, the he, me, he's, he narrates
1: the whole book. Um, we, we both wrote different parts of the book but he's, he's the narrator. Yeah, It didn't make sense to have two narrators but you can probably hear both of us at times in the conversation.
0: Yeah, it sounded like maybe you handled the interviews with the various musicians who were guesting. Uh,
1: no, not all of them. Malcolm did Sting and Herbie Hancock. Uh, okay. I did um, Roseanne Cash. Um, one that was on the cutting room floor, which I deeply regret is Joe Henry, who I think is just a fabulous musician. Yeah. Um, uh, so no, we split up those. I did the interviews with Bikiti Kamalu, who was uh, who was Paul, the bass player that Paul met in South Africa whose yeah. work is all over uh, Graceland and other albums. And Roy Howey, who's the engineer he worked with.
0: Yeah. And you with the background in journalism, of course, a big part of music, especially pop music is lyric and and how that comes into songwriting. That must have been a special pleasure for you coming from a musical family and understanding the English language. I think <laughs> at one point in the audiobook, uh, Malcolm identifies Paul Simon as the best English speaking songwriter of our generation, maybe of all time.
1: Uh, you know, there's gonna be lots of people who are gonna argue with that. Yeah. Um, you know, oh, is it Dylan? Is it this person? Is it that person? You know, when we first discussed this, you know, I don't think it could have been just any musician, you know, what fascinated us about Simon wasn't just that how good he is at various points in his career. It was that he probably has a longer career as as a very successful musician. You know, he had a hit with Art Garfunkel in the 50s, they had huge hits in the 60s, he had hits in the 70s, he had a massive hit with Graceland in the, in the, uh, I'm sorry, in the 70s and in the 80s. Uh, and if you talk to a lot of musicians like Elvis Costello or David Byrne, they would say the stuff he did in the 2000, 2000s, 2010 was his best stuff. So not many people have a career that that's long in pop music. You know, pop music does not reward really long careers. That's right. And one thing we were interested in going in is, well, how do you stay creative over an entire span of a career? Uh, Because many, many people struggle with that. And Malcolm had written about that in the past, which became a framework for some of the chapters. Um, Why is it that some artists like Picasso have this explosion of creativity and then kind of just like are drawing Randy Bulls for the rest of their lives, for the tourists, and somebody like Cézanne, who never had that initial explosion, in fact, he was, he was mostly rejected, um, even from the Salon de Refusé, which is for people who are refused, uh, he, but he slowly built over his career and never stopped experimenting and got better and better as it went. You know, Simon's in the second category. I can think of a lot of artists in the first category. Uh, maybe Dylan would be an example of that, who just had this incredible explosion. And then, you know, what he does now seems an echo of that. It's yeah. not to be critical. Um, whereas Simon has continued to do very different things.
0: Yeah, and that uh, was an interesting, another interesting lens over the project, which was uh, the, these creative spurts that most artists have versus, like you say, like over the arc of somebody's career. As mm-hmm. a journalist, and maybe somebody who suffers from occasional writer's block yeah that'd be fascinating to you
1: well you know i'm an editor so in part because i have writer's block so i've always worked with other people and not always i've done some of my own writing but, you know it's it is interesting from that perspective and i thought you know he's also a guy who suffered big failures and is wounded by those failures um who was still wounded by things that happened to him as a kid, you know, his part of the issue with Art Garfunkel was Garfunkel had this transcendent voice yeah. and he mentioned more than once that his mother said to him, you know, Paul, you've got a, you know, you've got a nice voice but Artie has a fine voice. Artie was the star, not Paul. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think he remembers his mother saying that to him. I think he remembers it probably about every 20 minutes because it uh, it really seemed to kind of get to him but you know uh, what fascinated me because you're, you're you're trying to figure out well how do people do this how does how does he deal with failure not that everyone has to deal with it in the same way but you know typically uh, you know probably when i've had trouble writing I, I just grit my teeth and go at it more i don't know if there's an old charlie brown comic strip where he just he assumes if everybody grits their teeth enough, they'll win a baseball game. Of course they can't see anything because they're gritting so much. Whereas Paul Simon, he goes about it a different way. He, they had a hit in the fifties and then couldn't get another hit. So he kind of worked in the music business, you know, in the old uh, Tin Pan Alley, uh, uh, you know, uh, 1650 Broadway, which was one of the famous songwriters. You know, he did demos, he'd learn different parts of the business. He learned how viable it was to own his songs, which uh, it certainly paid off for him. <clears throat> uh, after, you know, Sound of Silence, which was their first big hit, but it wasn't a hit when it came out, didn't, right. it, it wasn't. And he didn't kind of stick around and try and play Greenwich Village clubs where they, they weren't liked anyway. He went to England. He went to England to learn a whole different style of folk music. When he and uh, Garfunkel broke up, he reinvented, he was, clearly one of the most successful songwriters in the world at that point. they just released Bridge Over Troubled Water. And he said, no, I'm gonna completely change how I write songs and I'm gonna learn music. And and he set all these goals for himself to use all 12 notes in every song, which is very unusual for a pop song. Uh, And really even Graceland, uh, you know, later, because he got into some political trouble for Graceland and people were like, well, you're just exploiting these people so you can make all this money his album before Graceland and the movie he made were both failures as far as he was concerned.
0: Yeah. Um, the album
1: is Hearts and Bones. I think it's got incredible songs on it, but he thought nobody was interested in him anymore. So he'll just do this because it's something interesting for him. He didn't, I mean, he didn't go to South Africa saying, "You know, I want to work with township jive musicians because I think it's going to take me to the top of the charts. Um, so he's, I mean, if there's a lesson there for me and for anybody else who might struggle, it's um persistence is one thing persistence is going at the same thing over and over again
0: right tenacity
1: is maybe finding another way in another route and that's what he seems very good at he, he kind of he licks his wounds but then he he uh he he gets up and then he he finds another way to attack the problem he's very analytical that way there were a lot Sorry, of that was that was an incredibly long answer. I'm not sure you even answered your question. But uh,
0: um, no, it's anyway. great. You know, the the bit about working without a plan and then being okay with failure made me smile. You're right; it's a recurring theme in the in the book. It came up many times. As a musician myself, I I drove the van that my brothers and I toured mm-hmm. in, and I got accused of making a lot of wrong turns. And in my own defense, I always said it was because I'm driving more. That's why I'm making more wrong turns. (laughs) But we got to every gig. We always got home. There was a kind of almost like a adventure in the wrong turn because now you've got to get it right again or fix it. Yeah. It it occurred to me that as you guys were putting the book together, and maybe this is from some of the things Malcolm said in the narration, that you didn't really have a plan for this either. You didn't know how it was going to go, how many times you would meet with Paul, what kind of content he would share with you. Is that true? No. no. I
1: would say, you know, this is, well, it actually relates a little to Paul Simon. I'll explain how. Um, one thing we realized about Paul Simon was that he, he was very devoted to the recording process and his, he makes beautiful records. And even records you don't think are beautiful, there are enormous amount of like very sophisticated things going on underneath. And he, he walked me through this little introduction to a song you wouldn't think twice about. But it was incredibly elaborate because he believes the sound is really what allows people to engage emotionally, more than the lyrics, more than the melody, he believes in those things, but he thinks it's the sound of the yeah. song. And he found an engineer at, at you know uh, named Roy Halley who just loved that about Paul. I doubt they ever talked about it in those terms, but they've spent years and years or decades saying, Paul, what about this? Oh yeah, I'll try that. What about this, Roy? Let's try that. The example I love is in um, uh, the song, um, Only Living Boy in New York, which is a gorgeous song. And it's got this incredible background singing. And I asked Paul about, or maybe Roy first and uh, you know, uh, a lot of bands will use an echo chamber, which is literally a big chamber. You pump the sound in one end, and then there's a, there's a microphone at the other end picking up the sound after it's done a bit of echoing and reverbering off, usually tile. Many uh, of these famous, famous echo chambers at the old Columbia Studios up on 52nd or 53rd, which are sadly are gone now. You know, Sinatra, all these people had, you know, their voices had gone through these echo chambers. Well, they weren't getting the effect they wanted. And Roy Halley said, okay, you and Art, go into this chamber. Nobody had actually stood in the chamber and sang before.
0: Yeah.
1: So Paul wrote the arrangements. Um, I'm not gonna sing it, but it's it's his beautiful, I think it makes the songs beautiful background vocals. And he they did it nine different times, breathing at different points. So it sounds like one sort of unbroken human voice. It's just like fabulous. Yeah. Um I think he just got Roy Halley and Roy Halley just got him, which is a really wonderful thing in life. Sure is. I've known Malcolm almost my entire life. Uh, we grew up together in a small town. Uh, when we started this, we, we laughed because when we were seven, maybe, his, he had just moved to town. His family had a story but they didn't have any records and his mother went and got two records, Bridge Over Troubled Water and Peter, Paul and Mary. Now Malcolm now claims he doesn't, didn't like Peter, Paul and Mary but believe me, if you play Puff the Magic Dragon, even now, he will cry. I guarantee it. Uh, uh, you know, um, Dragon about- Forever, not so little boys. I mean, it's a killer.
0: Yeah, so, we about remember this. That song.
1: so you know what's funny is Malcolm and I were talking, whatever it was, uh, I remember it was 2013 for whatever reason, about audiobooks and saying, Yeah, that'd be great. And then, whatever it was, years later, he called and said, You know, we could do an audiobook with Paul Simon. And I said, Yeah, great. And I think we both we had, we had disagreements about what should be in it and, and different things. You know, I was pushing very much for certain things, he pushed for other things. Um, It's his company, so (laughs) when he pushes, he he pushes a little harder than me. But we never had to talk to each other about how it was going to work. And then he had this idea, what if if we just got other musicians just have little snippets when they're talking? I was like, great. And the producers, and the producers were wonderful, but they were like, well, would these be cameos? Would these be chapters? And they were trying to figure out what we were thinking. And I mean, I, I sort of feel for them, but we were trying to create something new. Yeah. And sometimes when you do that, it's, it's hard to explain it to people, what you're doing. It's really hard. And with Malcolm and I, we just never had to talk about it. It's a very strange thing. But if you, you know, when I think about, uh, again, Paul Simon and longevity, I, I think it's because he had this guy. He's like, yeah, we don't have to discuss it. We yeah. just have to do it. And if you, you know, I had that with Malcolm. I mean, we don't work together very much. But it's, a, you know, I, projects I did at the Times when I was still there, I mean, the biggest pain was explaining it to people.
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, I had this idea- Tell everybody idea. on mic here uh, about your history with the Times so they know. Oh, I,
1: I worked at the New York Times for 19 years. Uh, I was an editor there. Um, I worked with fabulous people. I love the New York Times. Um, weirdly, I started the Media Desk in 2008 that around the times itself was struggling. Um, and there's a whole documentary about the media desk back then. And sadly, I'm a part of it. I, you know, you don't really want to see yourself from behind on a big screen, but I did. Uh, but it was about my reporters, David Carr and Brian Steltern and how to cover the meltdown of the, the media business when the times was in the middle of it. And a lot of people thought the times wouldn't succeed. Obviously it has, and it's, it's prospering now.
0: What year was that? That
1: was, I think it came out in 2011. It's called Page One, A Year Inside the New York Times. Yeah. It was made by a very good filmmaker, Andrew Rossi, and he followed us around for 14 months, which I absolutely hated. Um, I wanted nothing to do with it, but my writers were enthusiastic, so we did it. Um, uh, So you can, you know, you can see me in all my glory. Watching somebody edit, it's, it's not like a thrill a minute. Watching the edit, um, but the characters are in it, like David Carr, and um, it's sadly gone now. And Brian Stelter, they're fabulous, and it kind of tells you what it's like inside a newspaper, for better or worse.
0: Why did you leave? Why did I leave? Yeah,
1: uh, you know, the it, it was changed. The Times was editing; it's it's changing its editing process, and it was going to mean even longer days. And I had worked weekends probably for 10 years i worked got it early in the morning late at night Um, i loved it but i had little kids i had one little kid about to have another and i thought i would never see them and my father uh who's a great lovely man but he was a workaholic and i didn't see him when i was a kid and i didn't want to do that um, I'd done a bunch of big projects. I'd run the, the video desk, which was a huge desk with a $20 million budget, and we won the first Pulitzer for video. I went to Opinion. I came up with an idea for a comic strip about Syrian refugees that won another Pulitzer. And boy, talk about trying to explain an idea to people. It's like, it's a comic strip about refugees. People are like, I don't get it. Like, And I couldn't get anybody interested in doing it. Like, I talked to all these graphic novelists, and finally somebody suggested, oh... I just got this writer friend, Jake Halpern, who's done good stuff. On, and I, I said, okay, Jake, I, I feel stupid even saying this. You don't even know me. I'm just a guy at the New York Times. Would you like to do a comic strip about Syrian refugees? And just a pause, and he goes, "Oh, that's a great idea." I thought, okay, fine. That's all I needed. And then we found he found an illustrator. You found and your, it, you off found at your boy Halley. Pardon
0: me. You found Yeah, your boy I need Halley. it. You
1: need it. It's it's the strange. I mean as much as I love the times and they do great work and there's lots I miss about it. uh, You know, I miss the attention to quality and the devotion to quality that so many- I'm I'm watching
0: from the outside, Bruce, but it seems Mm -hmm. to me there's an exodus right now from the journalistic trade.
1: Well, that's because the money is gone. And for big national papers like the times, and i would say a shout out to the former chairman uh, arthur salzberger jr because he's the one who decided to charge and that is what not only saved the times but saved a huge swath of quality journalism
0: charge for online charge for online yeah. yeah it was very controversial
1: at the time because you yeah. know the ad rates there's an infant supply so you know and the times used to make i think you know when i was first at the times I think there was a year they they were the first publication to sell a billion dollars in advertising and that those days are gone. Um, And so, uh, you know, I think it's terrible for like local newspapers, great city newspapers, you know, in Philadelphia and all these cities. If you are a a corrupt local official right now, it's a great time. It's a great time to be corrupt because people aren't watching you the way they used to. It's expensive work. Um, journalism and you can't guarantee an outcome um, if it's, but it's only labor there's, there's not going to be a program that's going to cough up the answer to uh, that you need it's yeah. just um, shoe leather as we used to call it in our romantic uh, ways but um, it's uh, so yeah it's very sad but the times is doing great they so are doing maybe better than ever they're bigger than ever yeah, um, it, it's strange. I was talking to a friend and I said, you know, it's strange for me because I was there for so long when the times were struggling. And I said, now and I, I kind of couldn't come up with the word. He was, yeah, now we're the Death Star. I was like, yes, you are the Death Star. Uh, <laughs> you hire everybody, you get everything. Um, but they do great work. So
0: we've got a lot of threads going here, just like a Malcolm Gladwell book.
1: Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Nothing, nothing the template
0: that he brings from The Tipping Point and Outliers. Mm-hmm. This, I call it weaving, I don't know what it's called, but he he starts these little, he plants these seeds and then they start germinating at different times. And you did that in the Simon article where there would be a theme occurs Mm -hmm. and then he goes away from it for a while and you come back to it again. And eventually it all wraps around itself like a strand of DNA, it's lovely.
1: Uh, You know, he really, I can't say he was the first one ever to do that, but he really is the reason um bookshelves look the way they do now with everybody you know the new science of this and the old science of x you know so much of that came from um his first experiments because he was a guy who just got he covered science he covered epidemiology at the washington post yeah and then he started applying what academics were saying to other things you know i I guess the other guy who does it although he does it in a different way than malcolm is michael lewis Yes. And uh, it helps that they are two, and I can say this because I've edited probably 8, 10, 12,000 articles in my life. Uh, They're probably two of the clearest writers and they're probably two writers who allow, this is going to sound strange, but they allow the reader to sort of involve themselves in what they're writing. They allow... The writing has natural breaths to it. Um, I I taught at the Columbia J School this past term. I'd never taught up there before. And, and, you know, we didn't really get to this part. But so much about that writing is is letting people breathe. You're giving people a lot of information and how you do it and how you present it and the images you find to present information. Um, You know, something like the Simon Project, you know, I probably wanted to junk it up with, A lot of stuff because I was fascinated in so many things, and I think Malcolm probably—and this is a good thing—he kept it much cleaner. It really is. It's there's a family story uh, with Paul and his father, which I frankly thought was a little more eatable than Malcolm did, but that's okay. Um, There's the creativity story, the longevity story. uh, You know, there are some other things. Yeah. Um, But he, he was looking for those longer narrative
0: arcs. Let's stay with words for a second because because they're so important to a book. And Mm -hmm. the cadence. Uh, as somebody who edited newspaper journalism for so long, did it make you crazy? The short sentences, the phrases? Did you want to well
1: look there are reasons for that? And you know, I started in magazines. And when I first started editing stories at the times, I was editing magazine stories. And well, once you put that in a newspaper format, it's just it's tortured. You can't do it. Right. Um, no, it, it didn't, I, you know, I think the one thing that drove me crazy and I, I told my students this, was the whole idea, you know, um, a, a news story is in in newspaper brands, it's called the inverted pyramid. You put all yeah. the information at the top yeah. and then it kind of gets, and there are literally, um, you know, graphics that show how it gets less and less interesting as you go down, you know, and to the point that, you know, only, pe- you know, only people who really care about this will read this for you. I put your dullest stuff at the bottom. Right. I thought, wow, that's unlike any other form of writing. People don't have songs where they said, just put the, it's a good song. Can you put the dull stuff at the end? No. Um, people don't write poems that way. People don't Skrits? write short stories that way. Movie there's no magazine stories. Yeah, there's, and really it's, it's, it's an artifact of the way newspapers used to be put together you didn't know how long the column was going to be until it was put together in hot type and you had these guys down in like the you know the printers who who could manipulate all the hot type i mean they were brilliant but they had to take it off from somewhere you weren't you weren't going to tell that guy can you just thin it out at the top um you know they don't you don't have those restrictions anymore so i'm like no no it's got to be have a great, we, we call them kickers on our, you know, in newspapers. No, have a great quote at the end. Make people, you, your job, like for me, you know, my job is, is like, I dare you. I dare you not to finish this article. Uh, yeah. That's our job assignment. I dare you not to do that. Or a comic strip about Syrian refugees. Once you read one, I dare <laughs> you not to get incredibly involved. Like uh, That's honestly their job. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and then want to pick up something else when, you know, I was working in video. No, you see that first frame, you know, about that ambulance driver, uh, um, you know, fighting Ebola, uh, in, uh, I think it was, I think it was Liberia, which was one of the pieces that helped win the Pulitzer. Like, no, you're not, you see that body in the street, you see his face, you're going to watch right till the end. I mean, it's only six minutes for God's sakes, but it's beautifully structured. Yeah, um, and that's that's where craft comes in, and I think similarly with Paul Simon, like he doesn't want people to go, "Hello, darkness, my friend." <laughs> what else is on? You know, um, and maybe that's why he believes sound, which runs all the way through, is really the the emotional thing. I don't know. Um, it's uh, it's our job, and yeah. you know, I think we we both we both have, we have completely different sensibilities now than I. And we, we latched on to different things. But I think we both knew that, that was that's our job. Um, if you start it, you're going to listen right to the end.
0: Did Paul get with your program? Because there's a couple of partnerships going on here, you and Malcolm as co-authors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you need the source to yeah. cooperative with that to some extent, because I, I've heard about people that get really proprietary about what they're sharing and how they, how it's being done. No, I don't want it being done that way. He well,
1: here was our advantage. Nobody had ever done anything like this. And people kept saying, well, is it, is he going to narrate it? No, not really. It's going to be in interviews. It's going to be journalism. I was going to be journalism. Well, we're going to write it like journalism. Who's going to read it. Well, kind of Malcolm, but you're going to be there. Yeah. Sometimes Like we didn't, and Simon, like, I don't know what their initial conversation was because um, if one of us, either Malcolm or I, have to have lunch with famous people, it's gonna be Malcolm. I think he's probably he's, he can probably sell a little better than me. The guy yeah. would be like, who are you again? Um, so I don't know what he, how he sold it to Paul Simon, but Paul Simon first day just sat down and said, you know, whatever you always wanna do, I mean, it's an experiment you know, one thing about Paul Simon is he's up for anything. He's not up for anything. He's up for interesting things. Okay. And he thought this would be interesting. The first day, uh, it's always hard to get these things going. And he was, but he was very lovely to deal with. But the first day, at some point, we just decided to listen to old records that he loved. Because he loves old records. He loves very particular old records. He loves this doo-wop song. That you and I might not be able to tell the difference between that do-up song and this do-op song. But he will tell you, you know, listen Listen to when the guitar comes in. Those are jazz chords. I think it may have been Mickey Baker who played it. Listen to the, you know, and he'll go, he will tell you how Mystery Train is the greatest song ever recorded. Yeah. Uh, and you can hear it through his music. Late in the evening, Graceland, um, uh, once upon a time there was an ocean or so beautiful or so what I'm talking about some of his later work now you can hear the influence of that song um, he was fascinated that everybody thinks it has drums but it didn't it was a slap slapback in Sam Phillips studio he loves talking about studio space by the way um, so I think he just thought yeah hey, let's just try it and see how it goes yeah. no we weren't it was going to be about music and it was going to be about creativity it wasn't going to be and if people want a rehash of like a disagreement he had with Art Garfunkel, they're not going to find it. They're they're going to find things about the music they made when they were when they were coming apart. Yeah. Um, and I find you know I find songs in that album like Frank Lloyd Wright and Only Living Boy. I, I find them beautiful and evocative, but they're about they're about basically a couple breaking up, a, a musical couple.
0: Yeah, he wrote um, both songs about Artie leaving the band.
1: Yeah. Yeah, now what I didn't know is, well, and I guess Artie didn't realize Frank Lloyd Wright was about him for the longest time. He oh. studied architecture at Columbia. So that was Paul's way of saying it. He thought, man, you didn't get that." Um, <laughs> although Roy Halley, and I'd never heard it until he said it, he goes, you know, at the end, you, you, when they were doing, you know, in the outro, which is this beautiful, beautiful, uh, you know, it's got the flute in it. Um, you can hear Roy Halley saying, so long, Artie, and now you can hear it in the song. So Little Easter egg, Easter egg, you find. That's funny. Uh, yeah, um, you know, you're not gonna. It, it's not. It's not about hurt feelings or who he was married to. I mean, he talked a bit about that, but yeah. you know, I'm not. I can read any musician's autobiography for, you know, petty disputes and wives they felt you know didn't sufficiently. Uh, yeah. You know or their genius or whatever their problem was. And we didn't want to talk to them about that.
0: Yeah. Well, it makes for a a tighter uh, content. I mean, you really get a sense that we're doing a deep dive into the creative process instead of family squabbles and and money issues and things like that.
1: Which is, you know, obviously I would have been doing this without Malcolm, um, but, and it was a great pleasure to do it. But I, I think the benefit of having, one of the many benefits of having Malcolm's name on it um, is that people don't expect, you know, a, the warts and all biography because that's not what Malcolm deals in. He typically deals in ideas. Um, now, we both contributed ideas to it. Um, I tended to contribute some, some more of the musical ideas, but we both talked a lot about the family stuff.
0: Yeah. And,
1: um, you know, Malcolm, you know, we were both interested in the creative long-term stuff. We had different ways of expressing it, I think.
0: I have a couple of questions about the production and because it's such an unusual, like I say, it's such an unusual turn from the classic autobiography Mm -hmm. where you're reading the musician talking about a song, but you can't really remember the song. And then he goes into deep detail about it. Now you got to go find it someplace, put the book down, Mm -hmm. go find it, come back to the book again and re-reference what you just read. But this new format, especially with a guy like Simon, who's got chops, he's talking about, a song and then he plays a bit of it in real time. I'm sure there was some editing going on, but it's done in flow. And I know yep. that because you have to get rights to all this stuff somehow. Was it, was it a legal nightmare to get clearance from all of this?
1: You know, I was not the producer and uh, the producer could tell you, and they did an absolutely um, beautiful job, everybody at Pushkin. Um, they can tell you exactly what a <laughs> what nightmare it was. When we started it, I can't say Malcolm is a huge, he's not a huge detail man when you start something. Okay. Um, I was worried about that, but Paul Simon owned all his own music when it started. When it started, he owned the publishing rights because he's a very smart guy and he worked in the music business and he knew, wait a second, this is valuable and everybody else is getting ripped off and I don't want that.
0: You're saying when it started, Bruce, when their career When, started. when he
1: started, I'm sorry. Oh, oh when we started uh, this project with Paul, he owned it, but he sold he sold his publishing rights to Sony halfway through. Oh now no! We, you know, now, Paul with us is like, don't worry, I'll give you anything you want. Um, in the end, I don't think Sony was maybe uh, they weren't oh, really sentimental about us. So we're like, you'll just give it to us, won't you, Sony? Like, well, we just spent four hundred million dollars, so I think we're going to charge you.
0: Was he so a little uh, sidebar here? Is Simon one of the guys that sold his yes. entire catalog?
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. The, there is so much uh, private equity money now yeah. pouring into that. You know, and a lot of these guys are all with us for a very long time. Yeah. But, you know, they're getting older now. There are probably tax reasons okay. to do this now, which I I wouldn't understand. Um, maybe maybe should somebody should do a whole just book about Paul Simon and. Accounting, um,
0: but that'll be a Michael yeah, Lewis project.
1: Yeah, Michael, Lewis, yeah, he'll find it. He'll find the problem. Um, the bubble in songwriters. If it crashes, <laughs> it will, it, yeah, it'll wipe out the economy. Um, yeah, I don't think the songwriters' bubble, you know, has existential.
0: Did, Sony, uh, isn't, he did they help? Pardon me. Did, did they help?
1: help? Um, I for I by that point, fortunately, I had done my job, and we were. It was before we did the editing. There was clearly some things. We had to restrict some of what we got. You know, I think Joe Henry um, did a great riff about the song uh, Duncan, which I thought was beautiful. But at some point, we just had to cut, and we had to cut a couple other musicians. We couldn't probably include as much stuff as we would have wanted. You know, he has a song called uh, which we talked about a bit, uh, uh, Renee and Georgia McCre- Magritte with their dog after the yeah. war. I would have done a whole episode just about that song. Well, how it was made, what I think it means, which Paul Simon is, he's a, he's a, he's a big New Yorker. He'll disagree. and say, well, Paul, you wrote this song. This must be about your dad. And I go, no, it's not. But it says it's about your dad. No, it isn't. He, so he's a very argumentative guy, I have to say. So the, All three of us are. So there's a lot of arguing going on. Um, so yeah, we didn't get to do every song probably we wanted to do. I would have done a lot, lot more.
0: Um, the, the project, you had a hundred hours of content and winnowed it down to four plus for the final product. I don't think it was a
1: hundred, uh, probably got to 50
0: though. Oh, okay. Okay, so, so still a lot, yeah, that's a of, lot. Of the stuff that, that's missing, you've mentioned a few things now of uh, Mr. Hunt and some of the other things. Did, did you have any serious regrets about what didn't happen or what you didn't get to ask him or what's missing?
1: Um, you know, I I just mentioned Renee and Georgia McGreet, which which to me is, is this incredible song, um, which is really, you know, Paul comes from a kind of typical fractious East European family. His his grandfather came over and was a tailor in Newark. And uh and you know, everybody blamed his grandmother for nagging his grandfather to death. And the father, you know, it was all this kind of crazy stuff. And and to me, that song is really a song about, you know, the old world after the war. Rene and George Magritte come over here and they find sort of this beautiful life listening to the songs that Paul loved growing up, which, by the, by the way, his father hated. Um, Paul listened to doo-wop and his father just thought that was junk, Right. Yeah. Um, So I was sorry we didn't have more of that. Um, I wanted more chapters on the later albums, which I realize is a problem because people don't they're not very well known. Right. I'll tell you what I really wanted. I wanted he made a big change after Graceland in which he started writing songs based much more on rhythm than melody. Now there's lots of people who who are good rhythmic songwriters and certainly when hip hop comes along, that's how a lot of stuff is written now. But he was always interested in kind of rhythm as the driving force for such a good melody writer. And that really started with Rhythm as Saints. And I'll tell you what I wanted to do, and the producers disagreed with me. Um, There is a recording in the archives of Paul and Artie in 69, in a hotel in Los Angeles, probably about a mile from where the Manson murders had just happened, and at a frustration, they start banging on pieces of luggage, tapping out this rhythm, and Roy Halley starts recording it. Rhythm is I'm making stuff up, but uh, and that becomes and that very that sound, but hitting on luggage becomes the rhythm track <clears throat> for Cecilia. Uh, yeah, yeah,
0: she- yeah. Yeah,
1: which, which to me is it's like this great song. It's so different. It's like Sui generous from the rest of that album. And it, uh, it, it was a kind of seed for him for a different kind of songwriting. And that really, really from Rhythm of the Saints through You're the One, I would say surprise up until probably So Beautiful or So What was really the way he he conceived of songs. It's very, very different. Not many people just completely change the way they write in that way. Um, So that's, I was desperate to do that. I thought opening with that, I just like the smile on my face if I hear people hitting luggage and then suddenly it morphs into Cecilia. But, you know, maybe it was a rights thing. I don't know what it was. Maybe we just couldn't get the archives. Um, I knew it was in the archives because I looked through an exhaustive archives list, but we didn't get that. So that is my that's my big maybe in Paul Simon too, the rhythm. But
0: yeah, we've well, got uh, enough content.
1: We'll get that going. Yeah, he's got a lot of stuff.
0: Favorite. So that, that was it. That's my disappointment. Just a couple more questions. Sure. Bruce, thank you so much. Uh, highlight from the project. Something that is your personal favorite moment, and and maybe it maybe it didn't make the make the final recording. Maybe it was a okay. personal it, interaction.
1: It didn't make the final recording. Uh, probably at one point there was a day I was there and Malcolm wasn't there. And we were talking about music. And um, uh, at some point, Paul was trying to show me something. He had his guitar. He said, Well, here, you pick up the guitar. You you play the rhythm part. You know, I'm a pretty lousy guitar player. But I was, and I, I for some reason, I was just so in journalist mode that I was just like, OK. So I was playing and he showed showing me. And then I suddenly thought, Oh my God, I'm sitting here playing guitar with Paul. This should be a big, like, this is one of the greatest moments of my life. Wow. But, I, but I wasn't, cause I was just focusing on what he was doing. And the minute I did that and thought, this is the greatest moment, you know, my hands started sweating. I couldn't make a chord. I was just, so fortunately, no one will be tortured with listening to my guitar playing. But you know, uh, when that happens, that's- um...
0: He turned old George Plimpton, remember him? Oh, of course. The uh, Paper lion.
1: Yeah, all that stuff. He he was a played goal for the Boston Bruins. Um, yeah, it was a bit of that. And I thought, wow, I'm sitting here playing guitar. And the minute I thought that, I'm like, man, does I do I stink? And he, he was very nice about it. Um, and you know, he showed me around the studio and showed me all these tricks he had to recording. And it was it was uh, you know, and I did a big section about that. And again, it didn't make the final cut because we had so much stuff. Yeah. And you know, people were, I guess, less interested in how he he added microtones to the first twenty seconds of questions for the Angels. To me, it was fascinating. Um, That had to
0: be an editorial decision you guys made early on. How technical to get with the music? Yeah, yeah. I
1: probably would have. I probably would have gotten a little more technical. Uh, You know, I always think in journalism. It never hurts just to aim just above people's heads a little bit. make them jump a little bit. Uh, but, you know, there's plenty of good stuff. I mean, there's, there's a conversation about literally one note in, in the harmony part of Sound of Silence. Um, when I said, you know, it's funny, you, you, hold the ba- you hold the tonal note there. You don't go up a third. And the Everly Brothers probably would have done that. It's one note, God, I'm going on and on about drone sounds and you drone sounds and fuck music. And that's why I made this choice. I just, it just sounded a little funny to me. It was one damn note, but it just took him off in this whole different direction. So yeah. there's no lack of music in this. I'm just, no, you know. I,
0: I thought it was a perfect balance. Um, and uh, I agree with you, in the speaking business, we say it's better to talk above the audience's head than below it. So same same basic thing here. That Yeah, you, which I think
1: has been a, a little bit, lost in the modern age i liked things that were hard for me not not you know uh calculus algebra hard for me uh but i like i I didn't mind looking up words in a dictionary or just kind of reading through them and kind of figuring out what they meant you know i always read stuff that was a little
0: yeah if if you like watch tv commercials they like written for seventh graders Yeah they're selling insurance for adults, but they're like cartoon characters and stuff. Like Mm -hmm. there has been a really dumbing down for sure.
1: Uh, I think so. And I think, you know, the times probably has a very different tone now that it would have. And it's, it's very important. I think people feel to be tonally kind of available to the widest possible audience. And I don't think the audience always loves that. I think they, I think they don't mind being, uh, you know, they don't mind being, um, challenged a little bit. You know, I remember years ago seeing old episodes of Leave it to Beaver, which was the classic, yeah. silly 50s and 60s uh, uh, comedy that, that you know, we would look down upon now. But, you know, there were references to John O'Hara and, you know, Babatree and sort of literary things that you would, you would never put in a show now. You would, what, someone's gonna make a John O'Hara joke? Yeah. Uh, it's just not gonna happen. Yeah. So yeah, there was a, there was something appealing about um, it's now called Middle Brow, but about the idea that that your audience wants to be smarter, that yeah. they want to know more things. Um, so I hope I hope the Paul Simon, I hope Miracle and Wonder does a does a, a little bit in that direction because it, it we want it to be challenging and interesting and and make people reflect on their own lives, their own creative lives.
0: Yeah, loved it. Let's close with a future question. I, I was halfway through the book and I'm thinking to myself, "What if this is, is gonna be like a new genre, who's the next subject? Um, and I started well, thinking, it has to be somebody that can actually play. It can't be a faker. No, like no. Billy Joel's been doing his piano side talks. Yeah. Even on the Billy Joel channel, you can hear him talking about how he wrote songs perfect hmm. for this format.
1: It is, he may be a guy who has already done it enough. Like his his life is a kind of open book in a way I think that yeah. Simon's wasn't. You know, I have my, uh, you know, I don't think I'm, I'm doing something else now. I, I don't think I'm gonna be working on the next one. Um, there were certainly people I would, I would want to work on, um, but it's Malcolm's company, not mine. So uh, um, we'll see.
0: You wanna give a plug for your project? Is it too early?
1: For what pro- my, oh, well, this is, I'm working for, um, it's a new journalism nonprofit called Aventine, or Aventine. You can tell we're new because we don't even know how to pronounce it, dot org. Okay. And I'm working with uh, Daniel Mattoon, who was the culture editor at the Times for a long time. And it is a, um, it's journalism that's going to look very broadly at the future. It's going to be explanatory journalism about things like climate change, things like machine learning and AI systems, how ubiquitous they are and the yeah. trouble with them
0: yeah. and
1: all kinds of human performance, all kinds of different things. And, um, and I'm working on my own writing on the side too, but um, I'm actually writing something about Richard Nixon. So I'm kind of all over the place as always.
0: Good for you, man.
1: Yeah, master of none. We
0: That's can me. find you on, uh, on Pushkin as, in the podcast, right?
1: Pardon me, yeah, we're still doing broken record. Um, Which is Malcolm and I and Rick Rubin, the big famous producer. And we do interviews and I just just interviewed uh, John Baptiste from the uh, Colbert show. And I'm about to do one of my heroes, who's Alison Krauss. Nice. And uh, yeah, we get to do, for some reason all the musicians I do are, well, I guess those guys don't apply, but I either do people in their 80s or their 20s. (laughs) And there's a lot of really young, fabulous songwriters
0: it's like the new version of the 80-20 rule. Yeah. It's the, it's the, you're interesting
1: when you're 80 or when you're 20, but you're not interesting any time in between. Malcolm <laughs> and I used to talk about this because magazines always wanted to like, profile the next hot young thing. we'd always be like, hot young things haven't done anything. Old people are interesting. Interview right. old people for God's sakes. You bet. You know, uh, I interviewed Judy Collins, you know, who's a... Who's a folk singer who you know she wasn't my favorite but oh would you interview her sure yeah she was fantastic oh good a million stories just just like a total ball of fire just a blast
0: just well i don't total. know how old you are bruce but you're very interesting and i appreciate you being with me today
1: <laughs> i'm somewhere between uh 20 and 80. Um, since i've had kids i'm much closer to 80.
0: bruce Headlam um, is the co-author of Paul Simon, Miracle in Wonder with Malcolm Gladwell. It's a fantastic audio program. You, you had a special name for it too. It's not actually an autobiography. What did you call it? I think we
1: called it an audio but then the, the autocorrect on email kept changing it. We don't know what it is. It's an audiobook for which there is no
0: book. It's fantastic. You should check it out, everybody. Bruce, right. thank you so much for being with me. Thank you so much. It was just wonderful to talk to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.